Matthew Ball, thanks for coming on the Tech Meme Ride Home experience. Uh, the book, I'm going to say this real quick. Everyone knows this, but the book is The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything with Matthew Ball. Um, uh, Chris and I both have copies. It's an amazing book. Um, Matt, aside from thank you for coming on, let me just say this real quick. You're maybe the most quoted person on my podcast. Maybe Mark Gurman has been quoted more. But I first knew you as the guy that made me understand Netflix and the streaming wars and the MVU and all that stuff. I'm just curious, is there something about that sort of thinking that led you to thinking about the metaverse? Like, is the metaverse in a structural sense, like, is there some sort of like narrative, like uh, storytelling thing that maybe um, prepared you for, for thinking about this stuff? I wouldn't say that there was a narrative element, but, you know, more broadly, I see my, I mean, let me take a step back. My career started in deep tech. I was actually focused on oil and gas and aerospace and defense technology. And that was deep, highly technical, primarily focused on industrial applications. After that, I moved to the early mobile app economy, helped a number of different major film studios, book publisher, radio and terrestrial broadcast companies shifted digital rights acquisitions and so forth. I worked for Peter Chernin, where we built, bought, developed, and scaled early direct-to-consumer digital media and community companies. And then I moved to Amazon, which operated the you know world's second largest video service and probably the most sophisticated orthogonal business model. None of those directly led to the metaverse, but I do think in hindsight, they were the template for this convergence of many, many different technologies and certainly practiced my like nonlinear thinking about what could be and how. When you say template, though, like, I think this is actually very interesting. And I've listened to many of your interviews recently. I listened to a lot of uh, the things that you published previously. Uh, I've read, rather. Um, when you're talking about like these these military applications when you're talking about online communities when you're talking about you know being at Amazon and working on these universes as as I think Brian is alluding to I do see a kind of through line where each of those different verticals or spaces or structures do kind of lead to this place where you want to integrate all of those things kind of into one context into one container um one of the things that I've I've noticed about you is how you tell stories so to what degree is the metaverse kind of a great unraveling of almost the story of your experiences um, and how much of this is sort of, you know, the, I don't know, the sum total of your lived experience versus like there's going to be many, many more big technology, um, I guess, epochs. And this is just one more step along the way. So, so that's a great question. I mean, I certainly wouldn't define the metaverse as the sum total of my experiences, but I do think that the degree to which I was prepared to work in this space is the sum total because i see that as deep tech as business model transformation as the assembly of digital communities of really unprecedented geographic dispersion plus scale and then in building orthogonal business models i don't know that i could have done that without those experiences or at least not in the same way but certainly yeah. narratively it's all cohesive because you know if you take a look at my work as you mentioned it's not just that it's narrative it's also that it's deeply historical, right? Taking a look at why we are arranged the way that we are. And that requires not necessarily the specific body of work that I had, certainly not, but it does require going around the block, you know, a number of different times. 
But I think I think the reason why one well I don't want to you know make this too personal, but like the the way you think about things tends to I think be similar um, in in resonance and tone to how I think about things. I seem to be a very visual thinker, and I think about things almost as though everything is vectors pushing on everything else. And so when you can trace back the lineage of how things have gotten to where they are now, they kind of make sense. And that they would not only make sense to keep doing more of the momentum or motion that is already in place, but that there will be these adjustments and changes and shifts over time. And so when I hear you talk about, again, like kind of your deep tech background um, or working at Amazon, or you talk about some of the anecdotes and stories about kids trying to pinch to Zoom magazines and having it not work, it only makes sense that those things will continue to unfold and that technology will meet those strange kind of uh, like, I don't know, idiosyncrasies or... Um, what's the Brian? What's the word where something is out of time? Anachronistic. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. right. Where, whereas I feel like like Brian and myself and you, I think, live in sort of uh, a sort of near future, maybe three to five years out, where things are making sense and we're just waiting for reality to catch up. And so that's why I think when I read this book, I'm like, yes, of course, this makes sense. It's so like obvious. I guess I wonder, do you find yourself being? And this is going to sound a little funny, but like frustrated by some of the conversations and questions that you have to keep answering over and over again? Or do you feel like this is actually your job as a storyteller to bring people into the current moment and to translate from the future into the present? No, it actually doesn't frustrate me because in a huge, I mean, if we take a step back when it comes to my book, I had a pretty intensive writing process. And that is to say that I did it pretty, pretty quickly in about four or five months partly while doing the rest of my job. And I did something that in hindsight, I wasn't sure was smart, which was continue to have a lot of conversations. I was doing speeches. I was working with a bunch of companies in the space as opposed to just going heads down as an author. And that process ended up being instrumental in the book because it revealed in a way that wasn't otherwise possible what I truly didn't understand, not fully, or at least the better way to articulate certain things. And so that's why I talk about going around the block. I don't just mean working on multiple different problems. I partly mean the community of people around us. This thing about the early efforts with the iPhone, you know, so many of the stories that I've been exposed to are essential to writing this. And I actually don't know how many people who hadn't been reading Engadget or Gizmodo for 20 years you know, could truly have the same perspective. Yeah, I feel like, and, and next one's for Brian, but like, I really am curious about what you didn't understand and what you've kind of come to recently in your insights. Because I feel like the three of us have probably read or consumed many of the same sources of information. We're voracious kind of consumers of all of this content in different formats. And the way in which we synthesize and kind of create little zip files of, of knowledge and nuggets, I think is the process of digesting and then bringing a certain lens that, uh, provide some elucidation or understanding. So what what is it that maybe in the last six months you didn't understand that has become clearer to you in this process? Well, I would certainly say that my understanding of blockchain, both good and bad, grew quite a bit. On top of that, I would say many of the deep technical problems on computing and networking were other topics that I just needed more time in the field. So for example, I talk in the book about the challenges of latency and how much of that is a conquest against the speed of light. I talk about the ways in which we think about 
cloud data centers as analogous to a power plant. You know, the, the classic example is why am I having my Xbox compute and process and render my game rather than using the industrial factories, right? The cloud data center, just like I don't have a generator outside of my home. And instead I use the power grid. And the answer has a lot to do with latency, but it also has to be about GPU sharing. We're pretty good at sharing capacity on a server or CPU, but it turns out that we can't really split GPUs. They're not divisible units of power. And those are the types of things that I just knew generally, but not specifically. And when you start writing in long form, you're writing for an audience that is not expert. You start to very quickly figure out like, oh, I could go two clicks, but not three clicks. And actually the four clicks are the core. You, um, jumping to the book, like it's like chapter three, where the, the title is the definition of it. Um, at which is kind of, you're cute about it because you kind of spend a whole chapter giving a definition ish. Um, it, it's, it's, it's too much to have like a, a one sentence definition of it. But one of the things that you said that is important to me is does it have to be immersive? Like it has to be 3D, if I'm reading you correctly. If it's not immersive, then it's just what we currently have on the internet, right? Like the idea of what the next thing is, is it has to sort of be this full takeover sensory, right? Am, am I reading that correctly? I would disagree with some of the modifiers. You talk about mm. full takeover sensory. No, it doesn't need to be full takeover sensory. And I don't mean to pick too much specifically on, on your off-the-cuff words, but I think they're a helpful tool, right? Full cutoff. Now, now we're basically talking about being in a sensory deprivation tank. That's the Ready Player One example. I'm literally in a shipping container strapped in a haptic suit. It, it doesn't need that. It's not clear that we need full senses generally, however one would define that. But 3D, was, 3D is key to you. 3D is key. Otherwise, we're just talking about the internet, but more and with some other applications. I think in the same way that we would say that going to a visual form of the internet, one that supports persistent connections to servers was essential for this generation of the internet. But certainly when you take a look at industrial applications, when we're talking about the role of XR in surgery or education in operating infrastructure, in turning the world's largest asset class, which is real estate, from something that's barely online to something that exists online, that does require not necessarily 3D as the consumer might look at it on a screen, but 3D in the sense of graphics-based computing and digital twin simulations. And so, yes, I, I do consider that a requirement. doesn't mean that there won't be lots of 2D and text things that are part of it. Is the blockchain a requirement to you? Uh, you, you mentioned offhand that like that's what you've been thinking about a lot over the last six months or whatever. Like, To what degree is crypto and blockchain... Uh, vital to your vision of the metaverse? It's not vital. But again, this is this is why my book's 105,000 words and why my definition chapter is 14,000 words, which is, it actually all comes down to the specific language, vital. I don't think it's vital, right? You can technically say TCP IP was not vital to an internetworking standard. We could have other versions of the internet with other protocol stacks. HTML is not vital to the internet. It's a markup language we used. 
what's interesting about blockchain is there are basically two different arguments. One is on the pro side. One is that it is technically required to the extent in which if we want to actually realize the full vision of the metaverse, then we need a better way of harnessing the collective resources, spare GPUs and CPUs, network capacity. And that blockchain is a great system for that. Now, that still doesn't mean it's necessary, right? We have lots of different mechanisms for accessing decentralized technology, but they would say functionally, it's the best, most optimized, and therefore it's required to actually build the metaverse as we imagine. The second argument is not about technical realization. It's about having a metaverse we want, which is where we talk about the distribution of power, individual property rights, self-custody of your data. That's more about a thriving and healthy metaverse. Again, I still wouldn't say any is a strict requirement because we do have substitutive technologies for that. So one of the things that I've been wondering about, I suppose, is you know the timing of many of these constructs in the world of technology allow us, as you say, to talk about things that have been just not part of internet lore um, up until now. You know, blockchain, of course, is one of those concepts, a distributed you know, database that everyone can write to and read to, and that is essentially trustworthy. Um, my, my, I guess my, my question is about governance around the metaverse, because you've talked about getting the metaverse that we want, and we've talked about the sort of visions for the metaverse, which, of course, most people think of as being dystopic. Um, I guess I've, I've sort of a, a two-part question. One is, is there a government, and I know you're Canadian, so I'm sort of teeing you off for this, but is there a government in the world that would be best suited for taking over and running the metaverse? And secondly, to what degree, if at all, are DAOs and other structures that are kind of in the Web3 world useful as a prototyping tool for thinking about how to govern in the metaverse? So if we take a look at the metaverse in its idealized version, it's highly interoperable with common standards, not unlike the internet today. The internet today is basically like a public good, right? TCPIP sits outside of the reach of any company. And even if the IETF, Internet Engineering Task Force, revises something, it's still kind of up to the adoption of all of the various parties. That makes it a public good. No one controls it. The challenge when we look at the metaverse is everyone adopted those standards and protocols because they preceded the commercial internet. When we talk about the advent of the metaverse, people are pioneering standards and de facto ones. And so there's a question as to whether or not interoperability can exist. I, I certainly believe it can. We're seeing that already. But the question is, to what extent? So some argue it will be so limited that to call it the metaverse is facile. The flip side of that is when we take a look at other economies. South Korea has established the South Korean Metaverse Alliance. Now more than 500 companies from banks to refrigerator manufacturers, automotive companies, and smartphone OEMs. And they're essentially mandating standards, not literally, but essentially. And that will disadvantage the average or the occasional company, but build a collectively more prosperous ecosystem and hopefully metaverse. That might provide an advantage versus the West. But then if you take a look at China, China is fascinating. You have basically one company in Tencent that publishes almost all virtual experiences from Nintendo to Activision Blizzard, Square Enix, their entire portfolio. They can standardize internally. 
plus WeChat, plus QQ. And then the question is, will the CCP allow it? And so the CCP is definitely best positioned to de facto construct one, one probably more comprehensive than that we see in the West, but they may also just block it because of the threat it poses. Well, along those lines, um, why won't the big platforms sort of own this? Like it, Chris and I spoke to Chris Dixon uh, six weeks ago, and you know, part of his argument for Web three is that we're going to uh, disintermediate the the big platforms. We're going to give a, a thousand flowers will bloom. People will have ownership and things like that. Um, and and I know from my own research and, and history of stuff like that, like even when even when the big platforms and the big companies know what's coming, like happened when the web came around, that doesn't mean that they will own it. But given that all of the big platforms are all looking in this direction, it, you're talking about standards, you're talking about people building on this stuff. How do we know that this won't just be a, a total capture by the Google, the Apple, the Amazon, the, the Meta, all that stuff? Well, how do we know we, we don't? Hmm. I think, look, I, I think where I disagree with Chris or, or on the margin is the truth of the matter is there's not a war between centralization and decentralization, not, not at least in the sense that one side can win. It's a spectrum. The early internet, the first 20 years of the internet was heavily decentralized. And again, to the public good. That doesn't mean that we didn't see strong forces of centralization and positive feedback. We were all on Google. Think of the famous line, competition's a click away. It was. Uh, we didn't use it. We all ended up on the Facebook platform, and then they progressively closed even on highly decentralized underpinnings. There's many different positive feedback loops to decentralization. Brand, trust, revenue, which begets more investment and better engineers and better product, that all is centralizing. OpenSea has nearly 80% share in marketplace-based NFT transactions. They exist in a decentralized ecosystem. They take a larger cut than many of their competitors, but they have habit. And now they have authentication, validation, and blue checks. I think the question is more around where are we? We definitely believe that we centralized too much over the last 15 and 20 years. And there is a very strong argument that building on blockchains makes it much harder and certainly less defensible to lock people in. And so that's more, in my mind, significantly kicking off that center back towards decentralization, but not moving it all together, no. And I mean, to, 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 to clarify, I suppose, I do tend to think of things in kind of a, a mode of respiration of kind of a, a breathing in and a breathing out. And certainly there was decentralization in the beginning, and then we moved towards centralization. And now there may be a move towards um, decentralization again, um, as just kind of, you know, poles that kind of move and, and sway over time. One question I have, and, and I... I guess I'm asking on a, on a technical complexity perspective, um, given that you've written about and talked about different formats, interchange formats, different open source uh, methodologies, different consortia that are coming together to standardize aspects of the metaverse. To what degree do you think, and I, I think I'm asking because it seems like the technologies of the metaverse are um, just much more complex relative to the HTML of the early web, um, that adversarial interoperability might be a mechanism by which you know, to Brian's point, we do achieve some kind of 
imposed decentralization on what might start out as a very centralized kind of metaverse. Is is that like likely to work, or is that the the, the, the formats technologies are simply just too complex to sort of move towards that um, that that style of forced interoperability? That's a good question. I look. Uh, I can't speak with certainty on either side. I, I will tell you that I am at least hopeful about path dependency. And I think that's one of the reasons why I find Epic Games and Tim Sweeney, whom I talk about extensively in the book, so inspiring, which is, I do think you can see this one individual as very consequential into the ultimate outcome. Now, what does that mean for ultimate decentralization? How dramatic a shift can that be, right? Path dependency is just changing the path. That doesn't mean doing a 90 degree or 180. That's as yet to be seen. It partly comes down to the question of, do you think the world without Steve Jobs is entirely different or just farther behind and somewhat different? I will say that when we talk about decentralization, there's one thing that I find really encouraging, which is, you know, if you take a look at Epic, and I read about this at the end of my book, they are rewriting their user agreements and their terms of service to relinquish controls that almost every platform holds tight. For example, they've said that if they ever have a dispute with a developer who's violating their terms of service, whether it's non-payment or abuse of the license, or even using it for terrorism, allegedly, they have to go to the courts to get an injunction. That's actually decentralization because they no longer have central authority over the rights of that developer, and they are giving it over to the legal system, poorly organized though it may be, that is decentralized. It's the democratic system. If he can push the polls of EULAs, that is really significant, and I think it is very specific to the individual. I did a story a couple months ago that people have been suggesting that we don't have the bandwidth to do a full metaverse maybe for decades. Uh, and, and, and again, a metaverse uh, like you're describing where it's 3D, where, you know, in, in, the, in, in COVID times, in the lockdown times, uh, just streaming video kind of took our existing infrastructure to its limits. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do we have the infrastructure to do what we're dreaming of? Is this something that uh, maybe the infrastructure is going to keep us from doing for uh, <laughs> for maybe m more time than Mark Zuckerberg would like? Yeah, I think part of the question here is really about what degree of experience for whom and when. Overall, your your points are exactly right, but it's very unevenly distributed. So let me give an example. Just from a latency perspective, which is pretty essential here, we believe that three quarters of Americans can reliably access a high fidelity real-time rendered world. That's not great, right? And it's reliable. It doesn't mean high bandwidth. It doesn't mean all the time, but one in four can't. When you take a look at the Middle East, it's only one in four that can. When you take a look at India, it's one in 10 can. Solving that is a big portion of what we need to do, and it's separate from whether or not the price of an Oculus and other devices comes down over time. But as we solve many of those things, we will solve many of the aforementioned bandwidth problems. But overall, we do think we're very short of what's required. My favorite example is this quote from John Carmack, who is the 
former founder of id he was the cto of oculus and he's called building the metaverse a moral imperative he said that if you asked him in 2000 if we had 100x the computing power we had today would we be able to build the metaverse he said i would have said yeah well it's been 22 years we have six or seven billion devices with over 120x that power and he still admits that there are enormous concessions required intel believes that we need a thousand factor increase and so we generally find that we need a lot more than we ever prepare for but that doesn't mean that we won't be able to build certain elements of the experience for some people very soon we're seeing that already on a similar sort of line, um, you know, I'm 44, I'm old enough, my entire adult life, I've been told that VR is the next big thing. I know VR is just one component of this or AR or whatever, but, you know, I was also, I re I'm old enough to remember when the uh, video on the web was going to happen and it never happened, never happened until YouTube came and then it happened. And, and the mobile web never, it was going to happen, it was going to happen. And then the iPhone came and it happened. Is there some sort of a trigger technologically, some sort of innovation that you can see that we're still waiting for, for the, the metaverse to mainstream? Well, so it depends. I mean, look, we've got three quarters of American, Canadian, British, Australian kids are using Roblox each day. That's, or sorry, not each day, on a, on a regular basis. That's pretty meaningful. And if you draw that trend out, it doesn't matter how fully realized it is or not. It doesn't matter if they think of the term metaverse. That's pretty consequential. But I think the most important way to think about it in my perspective is really to take in mind that we see these bursts, these critical mass points. For example, we know that 3G was not for any physical reason. There's no law of the earth, but 3G was a breaking point for the mobile ecosystem or like building point. When you take a look at what's happened with gaming, it was really around 2015 that we had the advent of widely deployed GPUs and CPUs and socks that enabled large 3D rendered social experiences with dozens or a hundred plus people. And when that happened, we had this massive burst in the gaming industry. Roblox took off, Fortnite became the biggest game in the world. And so we don't know exactly what the next unlock is, but we didn't know exactly that 2015 was gonna transform gaming. But certainly there are those who believe that the AR and VR of our imagination does require extraordinary advances in battery for which we have no foreseeable path, or the mainstream at scale demonstration of quantum computing. All right, Matt, I've got one more for you. And this is going to be a little bit of a off the wall question. I've never heard you talk about this before um, or write about it. So we'll see where this goes and we'll see if you have an answer. Um, but, you know, famously, I would say a lot of Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley culture uh, was informed uh, through the use of psychedelics and the psychedelic experience seems to be to be somewhat adjacent to the the sort of vision of the metaverse uh, that you know technologists and designers you know dream of increasingly in media whether you're watching you know movies or films the type of uh, content visuals that you're seeing are clearly psychedelically inspired 
um, if not enriched, you know, and even in, in most of Apple's keynotes, there's some allusion to the, the crack marketing team that goes off and, you know, has some sort of crazy trip um, to come up with the next name for some geographic region in California. Um, my question to you is really about timing. Uh, and about generational change. I think both to Brian's point about where we are generationally in terms of also how we grew up on the internet, um, you know, seeing these sea changes happen as a result of a younger generation coming up in a 3D environment and making an assumption that should be the way that you commute, you, you connect and uh, compute with other people um, seems like the baseline is being reset. So I wonder to what degree do you think that uh, psychedelics and the sort of psychedelic revival that is currently going on has had an influence on the receptivity of these concepts and of the desire to almost create this space in which those types of experiences might be more generalizable or more generally shared to other people without necessarily having to rely on um, psychedelic substances to achieve these extra-worldly um, moments. So that's a really good question, and I, I'm loath to respond because I don't think I can do that. The, the detail that you provided any justice. Uh, the answer is, I mean, like, I don't know. To, to what degree was it or was it not instrumental is not something that I can speak to in great detail. I will tell you one of my favorite stories. This, this is somewhat aside, which is when I grew up, the... Fantasia, which was one of my favorite movies, was famous, right? It, it was a classic. That's one of the things that your parents gave you or, or when you were growing up. I think what's fascinating about that is it's actually Walt Disney's third film. That's crazy. They made Snow White, then it was Song of the South, which does not hold up well. But then they made Fantasia. And Fantasia was not successful. And then they re-released it. And it still didn't work. And then they re-released it and it still didn't work. And then in the 60s, they released it again. And they started, you can find the posters online. They redid the posters and they're psychedelic, right? The ad company really knew what they were doing. And it became this hit, this hit in the boomer generation. And it is that, not the 30s, that made it the cultural touchstone that it is today. And so without weighing into what should or shouldn't be, I'm Canadian enough to have a pretty permissive approach to what should and shouldn't be allowed. There's a pretty good example of what people want and what can be creatively liberating and how so much of that is about cultural shift as opposed to necessarily legal shift. Yeah, and it just, it just seems to me that, I, you know, for the generation that's growing up in a world in which those types of experiences are more normalized. Talking about the metaverse is actually not that strange. Whereas when I've heard you give interviews, the level of skepticism and doubt and resistance that I hear seems to come from uh, like sort of a perspective that you know has an aversion to that level of loss of control or um, you know to being in this contrived space or environment. And yet, what you can imagine could occur as a creative endeavor in those spaces, I think, is is, is just really fascinating. Um, you know, and, and yeah, it just seems like there might be a kernel of something there. But anyways, so Matthew Ball, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, the book is called The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. It's funny because I'm sort of going back and rereading Michael Pollan's uh, How to Change Your Mind, which seems <laughs> somewhat related. Um, anyways, thanks again for joining us. This is super, super amazing. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Thank you, Matt. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Brian here. 
This next segment starts out a little low on volume, but if you stick with it for about 10 minutes, it definitely gets better, close to normal. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features Features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I use this, and you should too. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee, so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So, uh, Chris, go ahead and uh, double-check and confirm for me that you're recording, and then um, let's just go. I'm good. Okay, Jason, you're good? I am. Okay, I'll kick us off. Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Friday, July 29th. Uh, we're actually recording... I think this is the earliest show we've ever recorded, 9 a.m. PST, noon EST. So you're not going to get, uh, well, actually, maybe you will get a sexier voice from me. I'm not sure. Um, I'm just barely having my coffee, so I'm getting started. But um, does, does this mean I can't take a, a gummy halfway through this? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably a good thing that you haven't taken your gummy yet. Um, but it is Friday, so, you know, mm, you do you. Um, but yeah, so today, today we've actually got a very... Um, uh, a guest that's actually been a friend of the, the Tech Meme Pod for a long time. In fact, I just listened to your interview from 2019, Jason, with Brian. Um, and it's it's pretty fascinating to just, just think about all the changes that have occurred since then. And you guys actually were live in person the last time you, um, at least during that show. Um, so it's, it's great to have you back on. But um, Brian, uh, you want to you wanna introduce Jason? Yeah. So um, Jason Del Rey is my go-to for covering Amazon. And, and it's funny, you know what, let's, I, I was going to do broader tech earnings first, but let's, let's go ahead and start with Amazon because 
Jason, when we when we recorded that episode, I think it was at the Box Studios or something. I yep. remember one of my questions to you was that uh, does Amazon feel different? There was like a vibe shift. Like I felt like at the mm. time they were behaving differently. They were more aggressive or whatever. I'm kind of wondering because I mean, let's just go into the post uh, Jeff Bezos era. Yeah. Do you do you feel like those last few years of Bezos being the CEO at Amazon, things were in retrospect pretty much already starting to be in flux? Yeah, I mean, I could think that in a few ways. I I think the I think the last few years have been um influx is is a, a generous way to say it. I mean, I I just think they obviously they've had scrutiny come at them in so many different ways from um, Congress regulators and, and I'm just talking U.S. for now. Congress regulators, um, labor, internal uh, worker organizing, um, both on the corporate side in some ways, but also most notably in the warehouse network. And you know, to me, it all goes back to. Um, a, you know, did Bezos take his eye off the ball as he was out being the world's richest men and becoming less involved? But also, I think just in a lot of ways, like the the world, the world changed, and like Amazon leadership didn't change. They thought, you know, the same type of public relations strategies, um, the same type of treatment of partners. Um, all the way down to the same way you, you manage your workforce um, could still work. And I think over the last few years, in many ways, it's, they've been shown to, to um, have been wrong. Now, still an open question where any of this goes from regulation to the labor organizing to um, the impact on just sort of the company's core business. But I think, um, I think 2018, 2019 started to feel like a shift and in all these different ways, and and we're seeing some, some of the fallout now. Well, I mean, that's maybe the nature of regime changes like this, right? You know, maybe Jeff had a bit of senioritis, as we're sort of armchair, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, analyzing him. All of a sudden, he becomes buff. All of a sudden, you know, there's things in his personal life that are changing. But it's, it's also the nature of things that maybe when someone is thinking of leaving, they take their eye off the ball. But at the same time, until they leave, some of those new ideas and those new ways of working can't come to the fore because people aren't in position yet. There's the whole question of the succession and, and not just at the top, but all, you know, how a reorg would go when there's somebody new at the top. So in a way, maybe those last three or four years of the Bezos tenure, things were in flux, but also kind of frozen as you're describing at the same time. Yeah, I, I, th I think maybe so. I think, you know, I, I should also just know, like... <laughs> The pandemic's arrival in, I guess, late 2019 and then really 2020 in the U.S. totally overwhelmed, you know, people's personal lives, but also just corporations large and small. And so Bezos did get more involved and, you know, okayed the giant uh, warehouse build-out hiring sprees that he and others felt the company needed to, to you know, try to keep up with demand and let me be clear here like amazon for tons and tons of people and you know was a lifeline 
and um, you know, not only people who chose to stay home, but people who, you know, still have to stay home because of, you know, what the virus could mean to them, or definitely did at the time because of, you know, health conditions or whatnot. And so, um, you know, Amazon keeping up with demand, like there was a lot of good around that. Um, on the financial side, obviously, Jassy comes in, and we can. I don't know how deep we want to go into this, but Jassy comes in um, last July, realizes quickly, I think with some others, that the company was overextending itself with warehouses and hiring and starts to pull back. And then in the last couple of quarters, we finally see that manifest itself in the company's financials. Is it is is that maybe the biggest sort of thing that Bezos got head faked? Um, by COVID, like basically half of the tech industry did. Um, but then I think the retail world did in some ways too, right? I mean, we're seeing what's, go, we're go, seeing what's going on with um, inventory overstock. I, I cover, I, I, I follow Walmart relatively closely too. I'm writing uh, next year. I'll have a book out about, about the Walmart Amazon rivalry and Walmart's attempts to reinvent itself uh, under its current CEO. And so I, I, I think I think a lot of the retail industry did in, in different ways. But I'll, I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll let you finish the question. Well, I mean, I, I guess the question is, you know, and I guess this would lead into my questions about Andy Jassy. Um, is, is your sense that he, I mean, I think we can posit that he obviously might have a different personality than Bezos did. But is what he's been doing this year so far been what it's been characterized as, which is kind of undoing some of the excesses or undoing some of the mistakes or the or just the legacy stuff that it's like the dam is breaking because now all the new ideas can't happen? Is it is there a sense inside Amazon that we are undoing some mistakes is, I guess, what I'm asking? I I, I think for sure, and whether they're whether they're messaged internally as cost cutting or undoing mistakes, or you know, as Amazon I think rightfully says publicly a lot, you know, we experiment in a lot of ways, and um, we get things right, we get things wrong, and and we're not afraid to cut bait and move on. Um, uh, that's definitely been a lot of what's happening, and how Jassy has spent. You know, I, I think based on some other reporting and folks I've talked to, maybe as much as a third of his time was trying to figure out the retail warehousing capacity and hiring issues. Um, and so that has happened for sure. But we also got a hint that um, the company is going to continue to step up investments in AWS, uh, not surprising for a couple of reasons. One, Jassy ran AWS for a long time, obviously. Two, Profit, one of the main profit engines of the company, and still a lot of room for growth there. Um, and so they'll be shifting some capital spending there um, from the retail business, it seems. Uh, so spending time there. And, and then on the retail side, I, I think Jassy is still undecided about the physical store um, right. initiatives. I mean, obviously, they, they closed down the bookstores. You know, uh, they brought in a new head uh, of the store unit from the UK and under his, um, new leadership and also with Jassy okaying it, they closed down the bookstores. Um, but there's one area I think Jassy is, you know, likely still a fan, which is, um, you know, the, 
the walk out of the store without paying uh, Amazon Go type technology. Now, how that manifests itself long term, is it Amazon's own stores or perhaps more likely is Amazon just sell that technology um, more broadly as they've started to do? Um, I, I think that's one sort of area of invention outside of AWS where um, I, I think there's a long term uh, commitment there. We've we've also heard that you know maybe they're cutting back their ambitions in terms of drone delivery and stuff, which if you if you tie that with like the the retail experiments, you know the physical retail experiments and things like that, like that's where I think people are getting the sense that that era, that Bezos era of oh we'll deliver things by drones, oh we'll dream up new gadgets and new sort of you know uh, you know the joke was two or three years ago when when Amazon did a hardware event it was the worst thing to cover because they would announce 75 things yeah. you know yeah, right. so are, are we getting the sense that that is part of the sort of vibe shift that that, that sort of experimentation is maybe going to be curtailed I, I don't I, I, I don't know yet that's for sure something I'm watching closely I will say as I've talked to former Amazon leaders over the last couple of years um, during the pandemic, and reflected on where Amazon is as a company. Something that came up a lot was like, when was the last big Amazon invention? And most people honestly would point to uh, Alexa and Echo, which um, I'm forgetting now whether that was 13 or 14. Right, um, right. But, but that period. And these are, and, and let me be clear, these are people who are overall fans of the company worked there a long time but just felt like you know as the company grew um they made you know sort of amazing incremental advancements in sort of the speed of prime building out their own delivery network um and yes some people would say you know the just walk out technology of the retail stores you know could be a huge business in the future but still unproven and how expensive it would be was a big question mark. And um, I, I just thought, you know, that was really telling about the back half of the Bezos uh, era was that you have people who are fans of the company just wondering, like, where, where was the invention? Like, you know, we refer to ourselves in some ways as an innovation company. And um, where, where's that? Where's that hit? And, you know, I'll let I'll let. You know, other people judge whether that's fair or not, but um, hearing it over and over again and or things like, you know, it is day two at Amazon, you know, famously that Bezos and Amazonians talk about, you know, it's always day one, you know, where it's always time to, you know, build. Um, hearing fans of the company who've worked inside saying it feels like day two, um, I think that's, you know, somewhat worrisome for the company. I, I guess like one of the things to, to consider here. <clears throat> is to, to, to place Amazon kind of in the broader context of the rest of the tech world and to sure. look at a kind of, I don't know if, a, if maturing is the right word, but certainly there's been a series of leadership changes that are occurring at, you know, other companies, um, you know, specifically, obviously Facebook and meta, um, is one of the, the most recent ones that's probably in sort of a, a it's not really a parallel class, but in terms of the way that we think about it and the way in which it is ubiquitous and the way in which it touches so many people um, in somewhat controversial ways, I suppose like one of the, the, the questions that I have is about assumptions that the pandemic drove about the likely state of 
how things were going to be going forward, because obviously the big question about the pandemic and even, you know, as we're still in it uh, in many respects is when it would end and whether or not we were actually bringing the future forward by five or 10 years such Mm -hmm. that it would make sense to push super hard in this expansion because, uh, you know, as as both a product person and, and as a technologist and someone who's been in the field building products, it's always been one of those, and we actually, Brian and I talked about this on a recent show. It's one of those things where rolling out products takes a long time because you kind of have to bring people along for those those transitions, right? So whether it's voice computing and Alexa, you kind of have to get people into the mindset of having an always-on speaker in the house. And that while there are privacy implications for that, that the convenience that you get out of it is actually worth it uh, from a trade-off perspective and that that'll become clear to you over time. But we're also sort of in a moment where like as, as product designers, it's oftentimes, you know, how do you explain this to your mom or how do you know, how do you get people who are non technophiles to, to understand this? And I feel like that's actually another shift that has occurred where there was an assumption that bringing the future forward by five or 10 years meant that more and more people would just, you know, have computers, have some technical sophistication. Um, and maybe instead of five or 10 years, we've actually brought the future forward by like two or three so there's a recalibration and a resetting, and that's uh, like I guess I'm, I'm I'm trying to unpack what you said about um, the executives were wrong about certain things to understand one what you see oh, is yeah. how they were wrong, and then two whether or not like if they had not made those those big leaps to assume that the future was going to get here that much faster that they actually could have been left behind had the future actually arrived as fast as maybe some of us Absol- optimistically yeah, I- thought. Absolutely. Like I, I, I probably don't have to be clear on this, but I, I, I have not run. I have not run a sizable business. I've not. I've definitely not run um, <laughs> anything of Amazon side or divisions that these VPs or GMs or senior VPs or CEOs are running. So, and I, I can see the headlines and the customer complaints if you know Amazon had not hired as much as they did and or built out as many delivery right. stations. That- and um, and they, you know, sort of couldn't keep up with demand. Even you know, they struggled at times for sure, just like a lot of people did. Um, so one hundred percent. I mean, I don't know if a no win situation. If it's, I go as far as a no win situation. But you know, they made a bet that thought that some of the top leaders thought was in the best interest of customers. They talk about customer obsession. I you know, ad nauseum. I think in this, in, I think in this way that did actually lead that decision and um and it seems like they were they were off so i don't um you know my my job's not to, to, to judge them but i don't i don't judge <laughs> well, from, them from an analysis from perspective decision. right like yeah you can yeah. sort of say well yeah. you know based on what they knew or based on what we thought we knew about you know, a global pandemic, it made sense to push so heavily in this direction. One, because, you know, as you said, there was customer demand. There was suddenly we were all at home and Amazon was like, you know, just as AWS is perfectly set up for like the holiday shopping season, suddenly, you know, Amazon and its logistics prowess was sort of perfectly set up for taking advantage of the changes that, you know, were brought on by the the pandemic. And so now I guess my question is kind of like, were they wrong or is it now a period of recalibration and cutting back on many of the things that, you know, were sort of speculative bets, knowing that many of the things that were leading to those ideas being interesting, you know, maybe before are now no longer as relevant or interesting because the behavior 
of their customers and their expectations of many more people have evolved or changed. I guess my question is, do you see that now and going forward, those customer expectations are actually quite different than they were two or three years ago, or are customer expectations and behaviors resetting to how they were previously two or three years ago? Let, let, me, let me answer it this way. Okay. I think um, I, I, I think I think the bet didn't the bet on um, rapid expansion did not pay off, um, and now they are recalibrating. And I think that is what good businesses do when they have a bet that doesn't pay off. And now the question is, I mean, frankly, j- just to get in the weeds on the wood, you know, on the, yeah, on the logistics business a little, um, can, can they get prime back to a place that they had promised customers? It, would yeah, be it is no longer a two day delivery service. <laughs> I mean, and, and beyond that, like the big announcement, and I get into this in my book a little bit, the back and forth between Amazon and Walmart on this, but their big announcement back in, I think the spring of, I want to say 19, that prime was now a one day, um, they'll right. say shipping service, right. but most people expect it to, when they see shipping, they expect I order it today, I'll get it tomorrow. So one day delivery service next day, they, they you know, they, I think they're, they've made progress this year, but they're, it's, they're 100% not there. And in that time frame, they raised the, <laughs> they raised the price of the service. And I just think, um, that is one thing I will knock them on as not customer obsessed. The fact that you know, Prime has not been what they said it would be. And they will say all the other perks, but they, they sold it to many people as a one and two day delivery service. And for a lot of people at a, in a lot of times over the last few years, it has not been that some of it's understandable, but, um, I think they could do better in that regard. And I think, um, frankly, I think, I think competitors, you know, had an opportunity to sort of go hard at them on that. And I, I've not seen that happen. Maybe this competitors couldn't do any better. Uh, put a, put a pin in, um, making prime more attractive to people again, because I, I want to come back to that with the healthcare question. But before, before we get on to, to that and the, the recent acquisition, um, I, I feel like Andy Jassy, I don't follow as close as you do. He still feels opaque to me. Like when we, when we were talking about, you know, the experimenta- experimentation that Bezos loved, you know, the guy has a rocket company, for God's sakes, wants yeah. to go to space. So it's no, it was obvious that he loved to try weird off the wall things. Is, is your sense of Jassy, you know, maybe the best way to do it is everyone said that, you know, Tim Cook to Steve Jobs was not a product guy. He's more of the nuts and bolts sort of logistics guy, more, you know, keeping the trains running on time guy. And that's kind of proven not to be true. If you had to contrast the, the personality or the, the vision that Andy Jassy has to Bezos is, what do you think you would say? Um, so I, I think for sure people describe Jassy as more of an operator and that mean you know, to mean he, uh, he has really like he dives into the weeds to the point that um, it has annoyed some senior executives who were used to more free reign under Jeff and just more trust. Um, I think also while he started, Jesse started sort of in the retail business way back in, oh man, late nineties, early two thousands. Um, he was 
you know, launching and running AWS. And so um, I find often journalists or I'll just speak for myself. I often try to look for like um, deeper meaning or like hidden signs when there's a executive transition and not just look at uh, about what to expect and not just look at like the facts. And the facts are like Jassy ran, loved running AWS, ran that thing for so long. And like, He's gonna. He's. I think he's. Amazon under him is gonna invest even more heavily into that business than maybe would have uh, under uh, Bezos. And I think um, Amazon's always gonna be a retail and marketplace company, but um, that's not where his main interests are. And I think coming in, him seeing, you know, flaws in that, he had to dive in and understand what was going wrong in that business. But. Um, but I think, you know, if we're looking just like investment wise, I think we're going to his vision is AWS expanding in all sorts of different ways and getting this retail business right. And that part of that means pulling back on on some of the Bezos led expansion, like like the physical stuff um, on a personal level. Um, I've had limited interactions with Andy met Bezos uh, a handful of times. Um, people will say like Jesse, they describe him as like more human than, uh, than Bezos. I think, I think his EQ, um, is higher. I think, um, you know, I think they need him to get out there more talking to critics. I mean, Walmart back in the two thousands did sort of a listening tour of all their critics. You know, a lot of it was self-serving, but you know, their leader got out, their CEO got out there. And Amazon hasn't done a lot of that. So we've seen reports that Jassy's been in D.C. a few times already. Um, what the company's been doing in D.C. the last few years, I think, has um, we'll see if it works or not. But it was a very um, combative uh, relationship. And um, it appears like he's trying to smooth some things over. And, you know, and, and you, you definitely feel like that sort of charm initiative to regulators. That's definitely coming from Jassy. Oh, well, I mean, uh, and by charm, charm initiative, what, I, what I'm saying is, as opposed to being very combative and, you know, Bezos only ever testified before Congress, like, I think once in his entire tenure. But like you hear these rumors now that Amazon is floating possible remedies. OK, maybe we'll do A and B. Uh, in order to placate you so that maybe you don't come down. To, like, that was never on the table, in my understanding, in the Bezos. Well, well so, I re- so I reported on one of those, which was, you know, the private, like, the consideration that if they got, if there were some really harsh remedies on the table, that internally there was some alignment that they would, while they don't think they should have to, they'd give up the private label business because if it becomes not worth it, then it's just it's just not worth it to them. Um, that, that, that was dating back to, like, uh, to last year, and I guess Jassy came in in July. I don't know that he led. I, I don't believe he led that conversation. Um, I, so I, you know, I I think there's a recognition. I, you know, Jassy's a bright guy, more EQ than than uh, than Jeff, and uh, I think there's a recognition that um, you can only be combative for so long, and so. Um, I, I don't know what exactly he has said in these DC meetings. I'm sure he's he has pushed back hard against the self-preferencing bill that still hasn't gotten a vote and maybe will never. Um, but I, I think just the fact that he's been willing 
and he to be there um where his predecessor was not even though he lived there in many ways and had a mansion there um i think just says something about a strategy difference and just um sort of a, a personal difference in approaches uh real quick before i ask you about um one medical uh you said something a few minutes ago that I kind of did a whiplash on, which was, do we know that AWS and Amazon retail will always be one company? Like, what would you put the odds on them splitting out AWS and retail, say, by the end of this decade? Ooh. I suddenly turned into Scott Galloway. Uh, um, uh, does that mean you're for it or uh, that means you want it uh, uh, no 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 I just, just that you're, you're asking me to predict it um, and I'll take a shot and there's, and, and there's literally no downside to me getting it wrong um, uh, um, so what year I don't even know what year we're in we're in 2022 so the end of this decade um Whether by by choice or by outside force, I'd say their uh, retail and AWS are are separate companies by the end of this end of this decade. Well, except for the fact that I can see if they go into healthcare, that having <laughs> AWS still in house might be useful. So, okay, yeah. um, the one medical acquisition, and and I'm going to tie it back into the um, Amazon Prime thing, which is. Uh, Prime is a lot less valuable to me. You're raising the prices. I don't care about your Lord of the Rings show. Um, but hey, if all of a sudden there is a you know a suite of, of clinics around the country that if I have a sore throat as part of my Amazon Prime membership, it'll cost me ten bucks to go in and get a quick checkout. And oh, by the way, Amazon will ship me uh, the medicine that I need and things like that. That that would make Prime an interesting thing. Um, what, what's your take on uh, the direction that you think Amazon wants to go in with, with healthcare? Yeah, I, I, I think Jassy is a, is a big believer that they can be a huge innovator here. I think in some ways the Amazon Care um, initiative, which is sort of the, vir the virtual uh, care and in-home care that they piloted and rolled out with employees um, sort of came out of someone who I believe was reporting up into his org. So he's a big believer. I think I think they're trying to put all the pieces together, and um, I think they have a real shot to be super disruptive from everything from pharmacy to care. Now they have the you know the physical clinics um, with a with a sizable existing customers base there um i i just think that the execution of piecing that all together um is is really hard and i think there are a lot of pundits who just assume amazon will will nail it and I, i'm just interested to see how it you know how it goes i i have a chapter in, in my book that's coming out about both amazon and walmart's healthcare initiatives um and Walmart, Walmart's building, you know, their own sort of everything clinics um, inside inside some stores. I think they have a couple dozen, and and both these companies feel like with their customer base and their customer touch, and that they 
they can do better um, in terms of the experience, the transparency and pricing and all that. And um, I think Amazon with the one medical acquisition is, is sort of several, several steps ahead. And I do think there's a prime, there's a world where prime, you know, people are getting, you know, starting maybe to question prime a little bit with delivery, not being what it was. Yeah. The content's great. The music's fine. Um, and, but Amazon feeling pressure to, to add to it and, for sure, this this is an area where there is a ton of potential. Um, I just think the execution's hard and will take several years, and so we'll first see if this if this acquisition get, you know is allowed to to happen. I I expect it to happen, but you never know based on what we just saw the FTC try to do um, with with Facebook's uh, acquisition that, and that news that just broke this week. How do you make a password that's strong enough so no one will guess it and it's impossible for you to forget and do it for a hundred different sites and make it so everyone in your company can do the same without ever needing to reset them? Sounds impossible unless you have one password. More than any other product I've ever told you about, I can vouch 1000% for one password. I can't live without it. One password makes strong security easy for your people and gives you the visibility you need to take action when you need to. Any device, any time, one password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. One Password's award-winning password manager is trusted by millions of users and over 100,000 businesses from IBM to Slack. It beat out 40 other options to become Wirecutter's top pick for password managers. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash ride. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash ride. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5 pocket pants, the right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. But it seems like, I guess, I wonder if you see that there are any parallels, lessons to be learned, or insights you know, to be gleaned from what happened with Whole Foods. I mean, essentially, it feels like Amazon, you know, comes along and grabs some of these marquee brands that are, you know, quite well known, um, you know, 
are good at what they do and they don't have a lot of kind of Amazonification, if you will, like internally mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Of, of how they run. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I was thinking sort of more actually of MGM in that case, but like, you know, yeah. Whole Foods obviously had some tech, but wasn't, you know, very online. You know, they, they, they're, you couldn't really buy from their stores through the internet. And of course now you can shop, you know, Whole Foods from the Amazon website in a similar way. I've been a customer of One Medical for quite some time, and they actually are quite very online. Um, and the yep. quality of care and service is actually very good relative to any other you know care provider that I've had previously. One of, I guess, my question and thought is, you know, Amazon seems to find in some ways these best of breed uh, companies that may be a little bit more expensive because uh, they're doing what they do you know quite well, but without the efficiencies that Amazon tends to bring through just you know their rigor and through their. Um, uh, what was Bezos' original job? He was a, a hedge fund manager or something? Uh, an analyst for an a analyst. hedge fund, yeah. Yeah, so, so anyways, it kind of all comes down to like quant, whereas like these folks tend to, you know, do a pretty good job on qual. So my question is, you know, I've sort of like done a little like digging and did notice that this Amazon clinic brand might be present. I don't know if one medical replaces clinic, if it operates alongside clinic, if these two things are internally competitive and whether or not Amazon will more or less leave one medical as is in place, just like they did with Whole Foods, but over time start to replace or in improve the efficiencies of those services. And then my, my second question is about personnel and human resources. Obviously in the case of logistics, Amazon is struggling to find a sufficient number of, of workers for the warehouses and for drivers and, and et cetera. I would imagine that there's a similar crunch either occurring or will occur in the healthcare space. And so if Amazon wants to roll out one medical to all of its customers in you know, all the different places that exist, what likely do you see happening on the labor front with regards to staffing one medical? So the first is about technology and changing one yeah, medical yeah. and the other is about personnel. Yep. And I, I just... You mentioned Whole Foods, so I just have to ask one yeah. question because I'm, I, I've been underwhelmed by Amazon's ownership of Whole Foods, and hundred percent. And so, wait, wait, wait. Um, I would have started. Like, can you guys unpack that? Because, like, what were your expectations? What did you think it would become? Like, I liked Whole Foods as it was. I mean, it was expensive, but produce was good, etc. Um, what what more, did you expect versus what is it is? is you it know. To you? I have returned things to Whole Foods, uh, to, but I expected wait, 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 them that to... you bought at Amazon because I've, I've done yeah, that. Is yes, that, yeah, yes, okay, yes. right. So it's a distribution um, I, center. Mm-hmm. I was expecting more of that of of using mm. their footprint to be like in the real world more for the other stuff that Amazon does. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, uh, I when I order groceries from Amazon that comes from the Whole Foods down uh, in Gowanus, so like that's fine. If if all they wanted was for them to just have an easy entree into making groceries a part of our lives, our Amazon life. Fine. I just thought that there was more technology stuff, more integration into everything else Amazon does, and and I haven't seen any of that really. Hmm. Yeah, and I think I think maybe we're starting to see some of it. I, I believe just you know they have they have their you know the just walk out technology or some hmm. some some of their new technologies just starting to roll out in some Whole Food stores. And how many years out are we? We're are we? Uh, Not five. We're I think it's five, three five, ish. Five years. Five is five. I think it was. I think yeah, 2017. Um, okay. Wow. Um, it's crazy. So, so maybe it's just maybe it's just slower. Maybe maybe it's just slower than I thought. And actually, my family, we we do minimal pop. I live in New, New Jersey. We we do minimal pop ins at Whole Foods. So I'm not the best um, personal case. We we're not a regular. I just thought what stood out to me was Amazon pulling back the. Um, 
the delivery from Whole Foods, again, we didn't use it often, but the free, quote unquote, free delivery from Whole Foods for Prime members last year was just a super un-Amazonian, if that's a word, uh, decision. And um, I just think that spoke to, to difficulties and, and them not getting out of it what they what they thought they were going to. Um, but but let, let me go back to one medical for a second. Um I think I'll start with the staffing side and the labor issues you you, you were talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think even at one medical size, from folks I've talked to and some you know limited research I've done as I've started to look into the company, um, I I think there's already quite a bit of turnover among their staff. Um, you know, take online reviews for for you know what they are, but. Um, uh, I've seen a bunch about, you know, just just turnover and, and that affecting the experience. I, I'm not a customer or patient. I don't know what the right word is anymore. Um, so so maybe you've had a different experience and you do repeatedly no, see I mean, the, like, the I, same I would, kid. There, there's definitely been there, there's been mobility. There's been turnover. And by mobility, I mean sort of people moving from, I think, one office to another. Um, the way in yep. which the, the clinics are set up, like it's it's I think what's what's really interesting is it almost is run a little bit more like a customer service, like for, for your health uh, kind of operation mm-hmm. where you start in an app, you send a message, that message gets triaged. And then based on that triage, it'll determine what type of service, you know, you might need or what the nearest or local clinic is. Now I've also moved a lot in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. So my one medical office has always kind of been moving around with me. So in that sense, I also haven't really developed like a long-term relationship with any particular doctor. And again, this is very, just my personal experience, but as sure. a result, I haven't noticed any impact on the care I've received necessarily. And in terms of, you know, my records being kind of up to date and having access to those things and having generally people on the other end that felt competent when I've mm-hmm. periodically dipped into, you know, Aetna or other types of healthcare providers, it just, it felt like I was dealing with this, you know, like the government, like this monolithic sort of organization that really just does everything inside of itself and has no sense for the customer. Whereas when medical, I, I at least felt like I was treated like, you know, a person. So I don't mean to overgeneralize on my personal experience, but I believe that the turnover that you're mentioning is probably true. I don't know if it's higher or lower than the industry average. And the, yep. I don't know if it's a benefit of working for one medical that they actually give you that level of flexibility. All fair and good point. So, so I, I, I would imagine if this deal is approved that they leave it alone for a period of time, there's going to be a lot of learning that needs to happen. I think, you know, even as Amazon's done a bunch of hiring in healthcare, um, again, for reporting for my book, I've talked to folks specifically who've worked on the Amazon care, uh, business, which is the virtual and in-home, uh, sort of concierge service and, um, talk to some nurses who said, um, you know, it is a technology focused organization, which is sometimes very frustrating, um, for folks who come from the medical field and, and, and Mm -hmm. feeling like leadership still needs to, um, figure out where healthcare is different from, other industries as it pertains to, um, technology, you know, type of tech, not technology that's necessary. And, um, so, so, and, and then also I've talked to folks who, you know, were sort of in tech health who go into Amazon and just, you know, um, 
and feel like uh, there's there's really a focus, and maybe maybe you need some of this on on everything that's wrong with healthcare inside the Amazon health organization, rather than um, you know acknowledging the parts of the systems that work, and maybe not trying to reinvent everything from scratch. So there's been a learning experience, I think, inside that org, um, and you know, so so I think they'll leave it alone for a while. I think absolutely you don't do this deal unless you see a path to integration into a bundle, whether that's prime health or whatever they want to call it. And primary again, care. maybe, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh yeah. Primary, <laughs> yeah. Primary care for sure. And, um, you know, if, if some of these technology integrations, uh, at whole foods have taken five years to happen and that's not, um, healthcare and sort of a straight, rather straightforward retail business. Um, you know, maybe maybe I have to, we have to set our expectations on you know how long this this healthcare path will take, and um, I think Jassy is a leader who um, will is in it for the long term, and so um, maybe if I come back and talk to you guys in three years, we won't mm. have seen um, you know a huge revolution in healthcare from Amazon, but maybe maybe seven years and. Uh, Oh God! If I'm still covering this company in seven years, that'll be about sixteen <laughs> years of sixteen years of coverage by then. Well, um, listen, anyway. it, it can't it can't be three years because theoretically your book is going to come out before then. Um, right. Let me let me um, let me let me ask you one more, and then and then let's yeah. wrap on this. Um, uh, healthcare as an industry is also heavily unionized, um, and you you had a piece just this morning. Uh, leaked internal memo reveals Amazon's anti-union strategies. Um, so, among other things that maybe are evolving, do we see Amazon's labor strategy evolving, or are they going to double down in fighting against unionization? I mean, what, what, one of the business's last things was about how it's going to be the, the world's best place to work, right? So, how does that mm. jive with all these things that you're seeing now? Yeah, yeah Earth's uh, best employer right. and safe and and safest safest mm, place, place to work. To work I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to how to wrap this in a couple in a couple of minutes um, because I, I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. I think I think Amazon leadership, including Jassy, um, has thought for a long time that um, we do a lot of things better than our peers as, as it relates to employment, um, and we don't. Not only do we not get credit for it, that, but we get. Um, we get knocked for our quote unquote sort of innovations around productivity and the like. And, um, you know, I was, I was talking to a radio station today about the leaked memo and, um, long-term how Amazon deals with unions. I, I don't see any signs that they're gonna just say, you know what, we're going to stop the, captive audience meetings when, when, you know, and in telling workers why unions are going to be terrible for them. And we're just going to say, if you, if you want to organize this warehouse, we're not going to stop stand in your way, come in, come in and do it. Organizers. Like I, I, I've seen zero sign of that. That said, this, like this is not going to stop anytime soon. You know, you have, you have the homegrown Amazon labor union in Staten Island, still have Bessemer, um, Alabama vote up in the air. Um, the Teamsters all over just trying to create havoc. Um, I, I just wonder at what point it becomes a resource staffing 
and um, just energy distraction enough that Amazon comes to agreement with someone. I, I, yeah, I think yeah. it's fine. I, I still think it's it's far fetched, and you know, former executives say you know unionization they see, and this memo says you know basically as you know an existential threat to how they do business, but. Um, Things change. I don't know. Things change. And so I'm not expecting it, but but there's been so much upheaval at Amazon in the last few years that nothing would surprise me. Well, as I said, um, it's not going to be three years before you come on again because you have to come on to tell us yeah. about this book. Do you have a title for the book yet? Uh, we, we have a working title um, that's uh, – the working title is Winner Sells All. Um yeah. Uh, but we will, um, by next year, I will, I will know for sure whether, <laughs> whether that is, that is the title we go out in. Um, and it, it, it is, it is sort of the eternal dance, I guess, between Amazon and, and Walmart. It is. And it's, you know, I, I lean in, you know, I, I look at some key inflection points and topics in their rivalry from healthcare to, um, grocery, um, but, the book leans a little more heavily into the Walmart side, um, going inside sort of the Doug, Doug McMillan's been the CEO of Walmart, uh, for about eight, I want to say about eight years now going inside his tenure, the jet.com acquisition, um, their move into healthcare and, and trying to sort of weigh out the stakes of these, both for these companies, but also for us, all that, um, so much of retail in the U S goes through both of these, both of them. Um, okay. <laughs> thank, thank you, uh, Jason, for coming on and, and talking about that. Um, I just did a search uh, on Amazon and I did not see a, a placeholder for the book. So, it, it, right, we're, we're not that close yet. We're early. We are, um, we are not. It's, we are, day, it's we are day zero. Not, we're, we're, it, is day, it is day zero. <laughs> and um, maybe by the time book, the book comes out, Amazon will be uh, past day two and at day three. Amazing. Well, Jason, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been far overdue, but this is super enlightening. Um, and as Brian said, we will definitely have you back on again soon. Thanks, Jason. Thanks to you both. I love everybody. Everybody.